Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning, everybody. What do you guys think about our couch? You like it? Uh, it's like a choir concert or something. So we're like, let's just keep it. We're a community coming home, right? It's amazing. You have to be Kent to sit on it, though. It's the only thing. The two Kents. Um, okay. As our newer church is going through a membership process for the first time, we've chosen in this season to study the Bible's beautiful teaching about what it means for the church to be the body of Christ and for us to be members of the body of Christ. Uh, and I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I... I, I know I'm easily excitable, but I just get so excited about this stuff. I, the church is so beautiful, and I'm so compelled by the biblical vision for the church. I'm so compelled by what Jesus has done for the church and who Jesus has made the church to be, and I'm more compelled than ever to participate in it, to experience the fellowship, the koinonia of the body. But if we are fully going to dive into body life and learn to love the church as the bride and body of Christ— we can't just talk about how beautiful she is and what God has called her to be. We also need to learn how to reconcile her beauty with her brokenness. The church is the body of Christ. The church is far from perfect. So what do we do? We usually, as I've thought about it, tend to look at the church's brokenness and relate to it in one of two ways. Uh, the first is through rose-colored glasses. Everything's great. The church is amazing. It's fine. Nothing's wrong. Look over here. Ah, you know, it's all harps and clouds and choruses. And through rose-colored glasses, the church is never the problem. The problem is always them out there in the world. And so anyone who tries to criticize the church is immediately wrong and bad themselves. You can't criticize the church. The church is the body of Christ. Because the fear is that if it's broken, then the mystery can't be true. And so we got to protect the mystery, and we fear criticism. But this is a big problem. It's like family systems that are unable to address unhealthy patterns or pain points in the family system. And as we all know, that, that only makes the wounds go deeper, and it makes the problems expand. And more than that, it's unbiblical. Uh, God is, is very well aware that, that his people are not perfect, and vast quantities of the Bible are given to this prophetic rebuke towards God's people. One of my favorite examples of this is in the book of Revelation in chapters two and three, an amazing case of watching Jesus relate to the beauty and brokenness of a church. He sends seven letters to send little congregation, seven little congregations, and in each of them he points out what is so beautiful about these little local congregations in these cities, but then he also has a word for each one about where they're broken, and he calls them to repent. So we got to take the rose-colored glasses off. But our other temptation is to see the church through rage-colored glasses. Uh, this is the lens by which we see the church as vile and evil and ultimately harmful. And if the problem with rose-colored glasses is that the problem is never the church, the problem with rage-colored glasses is that the problem is always the church. And if you try to defend the church, just like if you try to criticize the church with someone with rose-colored glasses on, if you try to defend it at all, you're seen as the problem. You're seen as bad yourself. 
And I think we are especially tempted, culturally speaking, to wear these rage-colored glasses right now because some of the most popular books and most popular podcasts and the most viewed documentaries are all about epic fails in the church. And church fails are clickbait. (laughs) Church failure sells. For example, we are all listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, the podcast. I am too. We're all doing it. Uh, If you've never heard of it, it's a podcast about a very epic train wreck in a church on the West Coast about 10 years ago. Um, It's old news. It's not new news, but Christianity Today has kind of made it a roadside attraction uh, that we are all slowing down to look at and be like, ooh. But there isn't another long-form podcast out there from Christianity Today that is about a beautiful church with really healthy leaders that are still healthy today. To my knowledge, that doesn't exist, but even if it did, my hunch is nobody would really care. Um, We are all prone to schadenfreude, which is the greatest word. Everybody say schadenfreude. Don't you just want to bite down on that word? Oh, it's a good German word. It means in German, pleasure derived from someone else's misfortune. This is how human nature and it's how publishing works. Yet even so, the wrecks are true. The failures are real. And they're shoved in our face, and so our whole imagination is filled with failure. And we start seeing red everywhere. And this, too, is a problem. It's just incomplete. Because it leads us down a path where we end up alone, and we point our fingers in judgment at anything and everything that moves. But Jesus said with the judgment with which we judge, is what we will be judged with. Ouch. In other words, God will one day take your finger and he will point it back at your chest. And the person who does not shudder at that thought is a fool. So it is unwise to put those glasses on. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. But more than that, it's also unbiblical. Because just as Jesus was prophetic and incisively rebuking against the church, Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. He died for the church. He's coming back for the church. And yes, he loved her, get this, and he loved us and loves us while we were still sinners. He didn't love the church after she was good. He loved us first. Amen? So what do we do? This is a genuine thing that we got to learn how to reconcile these two things. How do we reconcile the beauty and the brokenness of the church? This is going to sound so cheesy, and I apologize for the cheese. I could not figure out a way to this not sound cheesy, okay? What we need is Christ-colored glasses. Yes, that sounds cheesy, but I mean it with all of my heart. We need a biblical Jesus-soaked gospel lens. Amen? We need a Jesus framework because the two options that we have in the world, quite honestly, are incomplete and unbiblical. So we want to ask Jesus to teach us how to relate to the imperfections in his body. We talked in our first membership seminar last week about how a part of Christian discipleship for all of us is learning to accept and love our bodies and ourselves as God made us for who we are and not who we aren't. And everyone struggles with that. And it's not easy. You know why? 
because our imperfections and our shortcomings, we are experts on our own imperfections, right? They fill our imagination. So we have to learn from Jesus how to see and love ourselves, and I'm just talking about us as individuals and our bodies as he sees us. And that takes discipleship, that takes healing. And it's the same, I think, with the body of Christ. We wanna ask Jesus to teach us how to relate to and love his body, the church. And I think Ephesians 4 is an extremely helpful framework. It gives us a lens to view the church. Ephesians 4 is about body life. It's one of the great body life chapters in all of scripture. One body, many members coming together. But it also gives us a framework through which we can understand how the church can at the same time be mystical and beautiful and small. And while this, certain, uh, this sermon won't resolve all of the kind of roses and rage tension, I think it gets us headed in the right direction, okay? So turn with me to Ephesians 1. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Ephesians. Uh, if you're at home, would you grab a Bible and flip with me to Ephesians? If you don't have a Bible, just flip with me to your New Testament passage uh, that one of the Kents read. By the way, at least to my knowledge, we have at least three Kents, but we do need some more. So if you're out there and you're named Kent, would you please come and join our church because we have way too few. Uh, it's too simple. We've got to make it more confusing. Um, okay, so before we get to Ephesians 4 that we read today, I want to go back to where we started two weeks ago in Ephesians 1. Let me just read Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 23. If you have your Bible, you can look at it with me. If not, I'll read it. Here's what it says. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, listen, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is where we started two weeks ago. Jesus, who is the fullness of God, put his fullness into the church. So the church is meant to be the full manifestation of Jesus on earth through the Holy Spirit. Ugh. Ephesians 1 is shocking. It's stunning. But it leads to the problem we just addressed, which actually some of us had conversations about that after that sermon. But wait, what? This? What do you, you know, this is the fullness, you know? What about X, Y, Z? But now look at me at our passage from this morning uh, in Ephesians 4. And I want to start at verse 11. And I do want you to look at it with me. Same book, same train of thought, same very small book. And so Paul is picking up these themes and see what Paul does with the concept of the fullness of God being in the church. Verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the what? Of who? Christ. Do you see what Paul just did? Again, same book. So this is very specific. He clearly says in chapter one that the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of Jesus. That is what we are, and yet our calling is to mature into that fullness and that full stature. Paul's framework 
is of a child growing up. It is the lens of maturity and immaturity. So I'm going to give you three points to help us understand Ephesians today. And here's your first point, if you're a note taker, that kind of unpacks verses 11 to 13, what we just read. The point is this, the goal of the church is maturity. Point one, the goal of the church is maturity. And initially I titled this sermon, what is the goal of membership? But I think membership in the immature church makes more sense of what I kind of really wanted to focus on. The goal of the church is maturity. And in order to help us understand and grasp the framework that Paul is using, it helps us to remember the Christian view of the human person. This is really, really good. The Bible teaches that we are all made in the image of God. Every human, regardless of race, gender, religion, creed or lack of creed or nationality, has profound God-given dignity just for being human. Amen? We believe that about everybody. All modern political notions of humanity's inalienable rights and inherent worth flow from the fountainhead of the Bible's teaching that each of us bear the imago Dei, the image of God. And smallness does not minimize that dignity. We are adamant in our church that children are full persons. They fully bear the image of God. Infants are full bearers of the image of God. The unborn fully bear the image of God, which is why we care so much about the sanctity of life. So I have a one-year-old named Bo who turned one today. He's so wonderful, and as much as he tries to, every day he can't talk. He does not have words yet. And my wife and I was like, oh, he wants words so bad, you know. He just doesn't have them. But Bo is no less valuable than the absolute most brilliant, most critically acclaimed person at UW. There is literally not an ounce of distinction in value. And I'm not just saying that because I'm his dad. It's true about all of our children. Also, disability or imperfection does not minimize the image of God. Christianity has a profound revolutionary theology of disability. In its day, the day of the Bible, pagan cultures put a lot of value on performance and merit and what people could do or how perfect they look or what they would do. And anyone who didn't attain to the standards of the day was literally cast off at childbirth. Not Jesus. Not Christians. Everyone has the same inherent dignity. Mental and physical health or disabilities do not change, do not alter the fullness of the Imago Dei. Amen? Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchkin, or however you say her name, have no more and no less than any of us. Despite what Instagram might tell you. Finally, sin and immaturity does not minimize the image of God. This is a big one. I came home this week and Marissa jokingly said to me, to use Bo as an example again, she was kidding, but she was like, I think Bo got a sin nature today. <laughs> I'm not sure where he picked it up, but he, he got it today. If you've ever been around kids, you know what it's like. You have these beautiful little idyllic baby cherubs, and then one day they learn the, learn the word no, and it's like, ah, you know, they're just all of a sudden a terror. You know what I didn't say when she jokingly said that? Oh, bummer. What if he doesn't have God's image? 
oh no, maybe he's a bad one. It's funny, but it's sad how much different people think that, or we can be prone to thinking that. Our brokenness and our sinfulness distorts, it corrupts the image of God, but it does not remove it. Even a person on death row does not have the Imago Dei removed from them. That is scandalous in our culture. So as Christians and parents, we see from day one the full Imago Dei. We're not waiting to see if it's there. I'm not waiting with Bo to see, let's see if he bears God's image. No, he does, and we hush at its sanctity. We ennoble it. All human life is precious. It also does not mean, though, that we enable and we ignore immaturity, right? Our task is to help the child increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So it was with Jesus himself. This is fascinating. In Bethlehem, in the manger, as he was crying from just being born, the full mystery of God dwelled in the child. The full mystery was present in the infant Christ. And yet, the Bible teaches us that in between his infancy and age 30, we only get one story, and it's really pivotal, and it plays a really important role in the Bible. And we read it this morning, and what is Jesus doing? Well, how does it end? It shows us that at age 12, he is increasing. He's maturing. So even Jesus had to mature. And unsurprisingly, this is how Paul chooses to teach us to think about Christ's body, the church. Same exact way. Paul doesn't use an incomplete, complete framework. He doesn't use a try-fail framework with the church. He doesn't say, hey, bride of Christ, you better get this right or Jesus is going to look elsewhere. No, Jesus put his fullness in the body and the goal of the church is to grow up to mature, to fully express and lay hold of the dignity that we are. Amen? And this is the primary labor of the saints, building up the body. All the leaders are gifted to equip the saints whose primary central work is the building up of the body of Christ, to all work together to grow up into mature manhood. And that word is used there because it's talking about Christ's body. In Greek, it says to become a full-grown man is literally what it says until we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of the church is maturity. Now here's the second implied point, which comes out of verse 14, the next verse. So here's your second point. The brokenness of the church is immaturity. The brokenness of the church is immaturity. Let's look back at Ephesians. I'm going to start in verse 13 so we can kind of have an on-ramp into verse 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's our goal, 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul immediately contrasts the full-grown man with the child. And he implies that while our task is to grow up into Christ, we are in the process of growing up. We're all on a journey from spiritual infancy to maturity. 
And the defining thing, I think it's interesting that Paul focuses on as characterizing the immature church is being impressionable and shifty and tossed about by the winds of false teaching. The language used here is pulled from uh, Jesus in the the calming of the storm and the waves tossed to and fro. Uh, Remember where the disciples are like, ha, 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 and Jesus is very stable in the midst of that. He's not afraid at all. And it's also pulled from the Garden of Eden and the serpent. The craftiness and deceitful schemes is this intentional trying, somebody else is trying to weave in false teaching into the church. So a part of immaturity is being vulnerable, vulnerable to every deceptive wind that blows by and is not being able to discern what is true and what is not true. And this is true for our children as well, which is why we take such care to speak truth to our children, right? And this is a theme from scripture. Let me read you two scriptures that drive this point home about immaturity. 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Hebrews 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. I love this. Listen to this. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. What a verse. Paul's teaching us that we're all in a process and that the process of discernment and growing in righteousness and health takes time. It takes practice. It's not just given right out of the gate. And this makes me think of master sommeliers who are wine experts. Has anybody ever watched the documentary Psalm? Yeah, okay, a couple people. Like 10 years ago, it was on Netflix, so I don't know if it is anymore, but it's about, there are a few people who get to this rank. A sommelier is the guy in a super nice restaurant, man or woman, who is the wine expert and who knows everything. And there are a few people, like a handful of people in the world, who have the rank of master sommelier. And in order to become a master sommelier, you literally have to pass a test where you come in blind and someone sets three glasses of wine in front of you and these people taste it and are able to tell the vineyard that it's from and what wine it is. It's insane with nothing else. They taste it and they go, old world, new world, France, south of France, this hillside, this hill of this hillside, this vintage, boom, nail it. You know how they get to do that? Constant practice. And the documentary is about how these guys just sit around and are constantly developing their palate. No one gets that out of the gate. They get there because of constant development of their palate. And that is what Hebrews is saying about maturity. Spiritual maturity as individuals and as the body of Christ takes development. It's a process. 
But in the process, we experience a lot of immaturity in the church. We see a lot of childishness in the headlines. We hear a lot on podcasts. And we're in the middle of it. We get hurt. We hurt others. We feel storm-tossed. And I know that so many of us feel storm-tossed in 2021 and certainly for the past couple of years. But the problem is not just out there. Though there are certainly problems out there. There's always problems out there, wherever that is. The church has always been prone to immaturity and childishness because you and I are prone to immaturity and childishness. Amen? The church is us. We all say immature things. We act in immature ways. And that is why it's never up for debate whether or not we're going to have a confession on Sunday morning. We always do because we're expecting that you need to confess some things. Isn't that great? It's just assumed we're all broken. Can we all just say amen? Amen. We're all in the process of maturing. We're all growing in our capacity to process and distinguish between good and evil and inwardly digest truth. And we're no better than the early Christians. So when they say, you're not ready for solid food, you need milk, you need development, that is true for us. There are many fundamental biblical truths that we struggle, brothers and sisters, to stomach. Our culture, both from the cultural right and the cultural left, has so twisted and so deadened our spiritual palates that we just tend to stick to milk. And it's very hard for us to swallow some things. And I've experienced this a lot in Madison. But we are not going to explain away or normalize childish things in the church. Whether it's in the headlines, whether it's in our own community, that's like looking at our children and affirming and enabling their maturity. And we are not going to be satisfied with milk. Amen? We want to train our spiritual palate so that we can feast, like Jesus did, on every word that comes from God, which he called bread. And bread is solid food. We want to increase in wisdom and stature like Jesus did. Did you know the story we read in Acts, I already said this, it's the only story we get in between Jesus' infancy and when he was age 30. It's the only one. And what, they lose Jesus, it's a home alone moment. I always think of Mary going, Jesus, like home alone's mom goes, come on. And they go back and they find Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is sitting in the temple with the teachers of the Torah, and he is asking questions, and he is listening. Do you know what Jesus is doing at age 12? He's training his spiritual palate. He's practicing his powers of discernment at age 12, which is why it specifically says at the end of that chapter that Jesus is increasing in wisdom and stature, even as a boy. Who knew that Jesus would even be our example for maturing and being in process? Isn't that great? Man, I love that. So we see our goal is maturity. We see that the brokenness of the church is immaturity. We don't want to stay there. How do we grow up? Here's your third point before we get to verses 15 and 16. We mature through body life. We mature through body life. Look at verse 15. You guys there? Rather, that's him saying, as opposed to remaining like a child and remaining to be tossed to and fro, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The language in these two verses are so powerful and they bring together all of our themes from this week and also just from this series in general about body life. First, notice how essential to the maturing of the body is truth and love. Isn't that cool? Both of those at the same time. Rather, speaking the truth in love, the body builds itself up in love. We will never be stable in a storm-tossed world if we refrain from speaking the truth. We have to do it. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 13 that all the truth in the world, if it's not with love, is like handing a toddler drumsticks and a drum set and being like, go for it. It's noisy. It's clanging. It has to be paired with love at the same time. But then the big thing that's central to these verses is body life. And the, 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 the vocabulary here is just so rich in the way that it's talking about the body. The maturing only happens when every joint, every member with which it is equipped comes together and when each part is working properly makes the body grow. That and only that is how the church matures. When everybody comes together with the gifts that they've been given and builds up the body. There is no way the church will continue to mature in Christ apart from you and me being us and working together. Amen? I've used this analogy before, but my favorite example is the Megazord from Power Rangers, okay? For kids who grew up in the 90s, we all watched Power Rangers, and it's all these different ninjas who are different colors, and they beat up bad guys. But at the very end, there was always a huge bad guy that no one could beat individually, and it was then the Power Rangers would come together to become the Megazord. (laughs) It's like their powers combined, and then they could beat the big bad guy. It's like that. So this is a biblical commendation for membership and body life. This is why you want to dive in. All our spiritual maturity is dependent upon one another. Do you see that? If we want to see the body of Christ grow up into the fullness of who she is, then we need to come together when every joint works properly and clicks together. We need body, of, we need body life. The goal of the church is maturity. The brokenness in the church is immaturity, and we mature together through body life. Amen? So let's go back where we began with roses and rage. Here's why this has been so helpful for me personally. This truly has ministered to me, this framework, in my relationship with the body of Christ. It means I can fully acknowledge the smallness and the underdevelopedness and the brokenness of the church and lament and weep for the ways in which she is storm-tossed. But it also means that not in the slightest does it remove or disqualify the mystery. This gives me the ability to be utterly honest and realistic about things, but it fills me with utter profound confidence that because Christ loves the church and died for the church and has filled the church with his spirit, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? So we don't live in a K-Love, Thomas Kincaid bubble. 
which I think we'll agree is a terrifying bubble <laughs> to be trapped in. But we also do not live in either fear or hatred. No. Our culture cannot process dignity and brokenness at the same time. Let me say that again. Our culture has no way of processing dignity and brokenness at the same time. Our culture cannot fathom something being cherished and loved, but also sinful. And so we either airbrush institutions or people, or we destroy them. We do not have a place in between. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that while you are still a sinner, Jesus loved you. His eyes were wide open, and he wanted you. He wants you now. He loves you where you are at. He loves you first. And he suffered and died so that you might be healed and renewed and made whole. And it is this gospel being loved when we least deserve it, when we don't even understand it, that compels us to maturity, that compels us to grow and increase in wisdom and stature. Anything else is legalism, anything else is judgment. The gospel is the dynamism. It's the thing that spawns the beauty and the growth, amen? And the way that Jesus relates to you in the gospel is the way he relates to the church because you and I are the church. It's one and the same. So let's put on Christ-colored glasses when we see ourselves, when we see each other, when we see the church. Let's rejoice in the gospel of the cross and let's come together to build this body. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.